0: Hi listeners, you can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
1: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hey, podcast listeners, this is Catherine Schweit. Today, I just wanted to give you a few minutes of conversation about the current status of a shooting and the people involved in it at Oxford High School, Michigan, about less than 10 miles north of my hometown, Detroit, Michigan, where we had, if you recall, a 15-year-old shooter who was a student at the school, and that shooter killed four classmates before he was arrested. So, of course, we don't use shooters' names, but the thing that makes this case fascinating is that the shooter was charged with murder and, of course, with terrorism in this case, which we talked about before, and he pled guilty to terrorism. But at the same time, if you recall, his mother and father were also charged with involuntary manslaughter for the killing of the four students. This had never happened before. The shooting was in November of 2021, you might remember. And now here we are in February of 2024 working our way through the court system and trying to get these cases handled for the parents. Son has already pled guilty, is probably going to spend his entire rest of his life in jail. Mother and father have two separate cases going forward. The mother's trial concluded last week after 11 hours of deliberation. The jury found four counts of involuntary manslaughter guilty on each count for the parents involved. The Defense counsel in closing arguments said to the jury, Don't hold her accountable for her son's actions. And more important than that, remember that every parent can't be accountable for every action of their son. And this really gets to the crux of parent responsibility, how much parent responsibility there is. So I know I've kind of taken you to the end of the story, but I'll just back up just a few minutes and tell you. What we had is a case where both parents had a lot of pre-information. They purchased the gun for their child as a Christmas present. The next day, the mother went out to go shooting with the child. The next day was Sunday after Thanksgiving. The day after that, Monday, and Monday in school, the child was seen searching for ammunition online. A teacher reported it. The parents were called. They didn't answer the phone. There was a message left. They never call the school back, but there's text messages indicating that the mom had texted her son and said, next time don't get caught, LOL. The very next day was a Tuesday, so just a handful of days after the gun was purchased on Friday, on a Black Friday sale. The Tuesday morning, the child was in a math class, made all kinds of drawings on the math class uh, paper that were Really very detailed people, uh, with guns and these violent drawings of uh, bullets wounding a person and blood dripping everywhere and statements uh, on the school paper, you know, saying things that you would expect is kind of leakage that we've talked about before. So I don't go through the details because we have talked about that on a previous podcast and we'll make sure that we drop that into the podcast notes. If you want more of the details, but the mom and dad were called to the school that morning. Two school officials spoke, a counselor and another official, spoke to the parents. The child was called to the counselor's office. And then the parents at one point were asked to take the child home. The parents said they can't. They have to go back to work. They went back to work. About a couple of hours later, the boy pulled a gun from the backpack and killed four students in the classroom. So the mom and dad then were, for various reasons, lots of details, they were not super forthcoming. The prosecutor, Karen McDonald from Oakland County, actually charged the parents within days with involuntary manslaughter. That has never happened before in the United States. And as I said, it kind of begs the question, how much is a parent responsible for their child's actions? But I think there were a number of factors here where I think clearly the jury was swayed about those facts. So I know that some people have Said, okay. Now the mother faces fifteen years for each count. She's been in jail since the shooting, since a couple of days after the shooting, because the parents drained some cash out of bank accounts and had to be hunted down by police. They were caught just a couple of miles from the border, Canadian border. So they've been in jail ever since as a potential flight risk. Now they still haven't been able to see each other, and they haven't been able to see their son, and they probably won't now because the mother is going to. Remain in jail. She'll be sentenced. In the future, we'll report on that. But the father's trial will begin also pretty soon. The parents chose; it's their choice and the judge's decision, the prosecutor's decision. They did not choose to have trials together. There is some level of in the mom's trial strategy that she said, "Well, it was the husband's fault. It was the husband who was responsible for locking the gun up, and he didn't do it." And some other things. The mother testified. It was a fascinating trial. I have heard some people say, okay, so what now? And one of the so what's now is, well, okay, but the mom will appeal. So just put my little lawyer hat on for a second and tell you that that's true. The mom will appeal and should appeal. What the mom can appeal under the law is decisions, procedural decisions that the judge made, but an appeals court cannot re weigh the facts of the case. So the facts that were put into evidence. And that the facts that the jury chose to listen to and how they made their decision cannot be reevaluated Suisbante by the appeals court, so sorry, Suezbante lawyers talk, but just so you know we're kind of all on the same page. What can be appealed is if some piece of evidence was allowed in when the court on appeal thought that piece of evidence shouldn't be allowed in, if somebody wasn't allowed to testify that the appeals court thought should have been allowed to testify. So I think that Karen McDonald, the uh, prosecutor in this case, who is in charge of Oakland County, the DA, very big responsibility for her. And I think she worked with two incredibly skilled attorneys who thoughtfully kind of went through and put together a case they hoped would stand the test of time. So I'm not sure how much there will be to appeal. Of course, there will be an appeal, as any defense counsel often is is going to follow through. If there's something that they can appeal, any pretrial motion that the judge decides on as a potential opportunity to overturn a conviction. So it'll be interesting to see whether there's anything that could be matted out there. But kind of my two takeaways from this, and I just wanted to share that with you, are one, We still have uh, the dad's uh, trial to go, but I'm sure from a strategy standpoint, the dad's attorney is now in a position where he already understands so much of what the state's case is. And a lot of times when you're working on your trial strategy, that's kind of the value of not disclosing the strategy of your case. Here, the prosecutors had to, to put the strategy of their case out in front of the jury, out in front of the public for anybody who wanted to sit through the hearing in the courtroom, and I'm sure that the defense attorney for the dad will work on other strategies to find a way to extract the dad from responsibility for the child's conduct or supervision of the child. Just as in the mom's trial, she said, well, I wasn't responsible for the gun. But in many other cases, many other things that have to do with the son, the mom said, oh yeah, I did that, I did that, I did that, in terms of parenting. So that's one thing is the idea that we're going to see a a different sort of strategy for the defense counsel for the dad as best they can to come up with something that's alternative. And then the second thing that I think is is more broad-reaching is across the country, where before when there was a child or someone under the age of 18 who used a handgun or a long gun a rifle for any nefarious conduct, the parent was never looked to as the next person. I mean, I guess I should probably explain it this way. When I was an FBI special agent, we covered bank robberies. We all know the person who can be convicted of the bank robbery is the person who comes in the bank and robs the bank. But under the law, the person who's sitting out in the getaway car, he can also be charged with a bank robbery. And if the person who comes in to rob a bank kills a person intentionally or accidentally, that person who's sitting out in the car can also be charged with that murder. It's a process under the law that just says, if you're involved in this crime, you're responsible for all the crime. It's a very broad brush summary of it, but that's part of what we're looking at. And I think that goes somewhat to what we're looking at here. We've never had a situation where if a child uses a handgun and kills somebody, the responsibility inures to everybody involved in the action. In this case, the purchasing of the handgun or the securing of the handgun. The parents weren't in the car, they weren't near the school, they didn't know the kid they say was going to go and do this, of course, but the jury found that they were sufficiently negligent, grossly negligent in their conduct. So taking that terminology, which is Michigan state law language, but other states have similar language, think about when an adult is grossly negligent with a weapon that is used in a shooting, and if that parent can then be charged with this shooting. It's a very different scenario than we've seen under the law before. That's the significance of this case, the parents being charged. And what the defense counsel argued in her very closing arguments for the mother was saying, this is for her case, as I mentioned, but also for every other mother who is doing the best that she can for her child. So I think the jury weighed that argument and the facts in front of them. And maybe in this case, we won't see a lot of cases where a parent might be charged with involuntary manslaughter because the facts in this case seem to be pretty egregious in some ways, if you get the details of them in our previous podcast. But there will be other cases, and I think what this has done is kind of broken the ceiling Uh, on whether or not a district attorney, a prosecutor should look at higher charges, more concerning charges like involuntary manslaughter or other charges, as opposed to just, you know, failure to secure a weapon. Those are the kind of charges that might have been coming out before, which is failure to secure a weapon or something that might be even a misdemeanor. Now, I think a lot of prosecutors, a lot of district attorneys are going to look at the charges that could be leveled against a parent. And, you know, is that good or is that bad? I don't know. I think we're going to have to see. But this case in Oakland County, Michigan, is a game changer in terms of what prosecutors might look at and how they might delve into the facts and the background of how a person was able to get a gun into their hands and whether or not decisions that the parents made or that their neglect, benign neglect, resulted in the death of others. So a fascinating case to follow, but I just wanted to kind of give you my take on it for right now. So let's keep track of the case in Michigan.